Welcome. If you're a woman who has a sense that there's more out there for you, you're in the right place. I'm Whitney Baker, host of the Electric Ideas podcast. Somewhere along the line of working kids, life carried on, but I lost track of my truth. I'm on a reflective journey, and that's what this podcast is all about. Each week, I interview a woman who is lighting her own path and offering others hope. Before our conversation ends, we'll share a reflective question for you to explore. Sometimes all we need is a jolt, a fresh idea, an aha moment that connects us to a sense of possibility. This, my friends, is what I call an electric idea. Welcome back to Electric Ideas. This is such an exciting day because guess what? Electric Ideas, the podcast, turns 75 today. 75! It's been such an exciting journey. I started Electric Ideas during the pandemic from a makeshift office in the corner of my bedroom. I had done so much inner work and felt so called to share my voice and my journey because I truly, deeply want to be of service to other women. But I'll be honest, I had to work through a lot of fear and self-doubt in order to take the plunge and put myself out there. I'm sharing this because I cannot even begin to tell you how much joy and purpose I found on the other side of listening to myself and taking this plunge. It's been one of the most exciting adventures of my life. And I just want to tell you, if you have something in your heart that keeps calling to you, please don't wait. There's never going to be this perfect time where life starts. Just begin in whatever small way you can. I can promise you it will add up. And not only this, it'll probably change your life in ways you cannot even fathom. I'm so grateful. I continue to have the most interesting and inspiring women flow into my life. Join me on the show. That includes today's very special guest, Dr. Rachel Hers. Dr. Hers is a neuroscientist and world-leading expert on the psychological science of smell. Dr. Hers has been teaching and researching on senses, emotion, perception, motivated behavior, and cognition, all related to the science of smell since 1990. She's a TED speaker. She's published more than 100 original research papers and received tons of awards and grants. She's on the faculty at Brown University and is a professional consultant to various aroma chemical industries. She's even called upon as an expert witness in legal cases involving the sense of smell. Dr. Hurst has authored a number of both academic and mainstream books. While this conversation covers a lot of territory and isn't anchored specifically to any single one of her books, I want to mention her most recent publication, which is called Why You Eat What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food, because after connecting and being inspired myself by Dr. Hers, this is a book that quickly made its way to my bookshelf and my to-read list. So I wanted to make sure to share that with you as well. All right, let's do this. All right, Dr. Hertz, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Whitney. It's a delight to be on. You are renowned for your research on the connection between scent and memory. So let's start there. Which research findings of yours in this area of scent and memory are people most surprised by recently? 
Well, I think because the topic has been talked about for a long time, I don't know that there's that much surprise any longer to find out. I mean, my research actually was to put an empirical stamp on the claim that people say, you know, smell is the best cue to memory. And there's a long history of anecdote and literature that sort of states this and seems to support that. But there wasn't really any clear science on it prior to the work that I did now about 30 years ago. So that was really when I began working on this and sort of demonstrating that, yes, it is true. Maybe what's surprising about it is that the connection between smell and memory is primarily an emotional one. It's not that memories that are triggered by smells are more accurate or that you remember specifically more details, like I know you were wearing a blue dress, not a red dress and, and that kind of thing. And, and there were flowers in the background when we were talking like there are right now. So that kind of thing is not better with smell than if I were to remember, for example, our conversation today through any other means. But if later on in my life, I'm reminded of this particular moment and it's a scent that's reminding me of it, then I'm going to have a much more emotionally intense and rich memory of our conversation and our interaction. And I'm also going to feel much more brought back to the original time and place, like feel like I'm here right now again. So these qualities of evocativeness and emotionality are what really make smell evoked memories special and distinctive. It's not that they're more accurate. What's interesting about the fact that they're more emotional and how that can kind of translate or sort of rub off actually erroneously on other facets of memory is when we're more emotionally invested in a memory, we tend to believe it more. We tend to be much more certain that that's exactly how it happened because we feel much more emotionally connected to it. So it's kind of like eyewitness testimony where people are very emotionally involved in a recollection because whatever they witnessed was really intense. And we know that eyewitness testimony is renowned for its inaccuracy. <laughs> and not to say that smell evoked memories are inaccurate. They're just not more accurate. But people are often very convinced that they're superior in accuracy because of the fact that they're more emotionally involved in them. Interesting. So speaking of memory and the role of smell, one of these phenomenons that I've seen, to be honest, on social media that may be unpopular opinion, but I found a little bit cheesy is people posting making core memories. And I'm curious what your opinion is on building core memories. And if we can, based on your first response, if we can proactively use scent to help create memories that could be evoked in the future, maybe for our families or ourselves. So absolutely. So it may be kind of cheesy to see this kind of as a mandate on social media, but one of the really fascinating and really fun things about smell is we can totally proactively build basically a scent photograph for our future by deliberately pairing specific experiences with new aromas. And here's the thing. You can't take a scent that you know from something else and say like, okay, I'm going to take vanilla and bring it to my trip to Italy and be smelling vanilla every day. And then when I get back, when I smell vanilla, it's going to remind me of the times I was walking through the streets of Rome. That's not going to work because vanilla, first of all, is very familiar and connected to tons of things and so many things, in fact, that it's really connected almost to nothing. Maybe we think of cupcakes or baking or that kind of thing or just generally like a sweet thing. But it's going to be not possible to really connect that to some specific future event for us to recall because it's already very familiar. However, what I do 
And what I recommend for other people to do when they are trying to create a new memory, especially connected to, let's say, an upcoming special event, is to, for example, buy a new perfume, or you can just find a fragrance, any kind of scent, it doesn't have to be a perfume, that you haven't formed prior associations to. So something novel is the idea. Like it can't, it doesn't have to be something so space age out there that, you know, it's it's beyond recognition. But the idea is to have something that's not part of your daily life, that you don't have uh, prior associations to that, and that bring that with you and or wear that while you are going through this particular event, whether it be a special trip or any other way you're trying to develop a specific core memory. And then don't use that same scent again, except for when you want to remember that particular moment. So the key is to only pair it with that specific event that you're trying to create the scent association to, and then not use that scent again for anything else other than recollections. And also don't over smell it in the future, because the more times that you bring it out to smell it, the more likely it might be to kind of become sort of diluted with whatever's going on in the moment, as well as the fact that the more we sniff at something, actually the less we're able to detect it, which is another property of smell. But you can definitely do these kind of scent photograph books of the future with deliberately pairing a scent to specific events. So I didn't do this with as much intention as you're saying, but something that I've always done is when I get free perfume samples where I kind of like the smell, I will save them and then I'll throw one in just for trips. So it's kind of like my signature scent for that trip. This is making me want to be a little bit more intentional about that, like maybe picking it out and then going through remembering. What about in our day-to-day routines? Let's say we want to trigger a sense of focus or a sense of calm. How do you use scent or recommend people use scent in that way just to kind of support their daily habits? I always say that it's best to use a scent that you've never really had any experience with before when you want to do something really intentional, whether it be focus or feeling joy or feeling energized, feeling confident, whatever the case might be. However, it's a little less important than when you're trying to do the specific full-bodied memory association of like the exact things that happen when you are on a particular trip. So here you can take something that is preferably unfamiliar, but if it's familiar, that's okay. If it falls within in your general experience, the kind of scent that you would generally think of as being, let's say, something that helps you concentrate or something that makes you feel excited or refreshed and so forth. And then specifically smell that while you're in that state. So for instance, if you're doing yoga and you're trying to get into a meditative state and you're feeling really frazzled and your brain is jumping everywhere, but you've previously connected a scent to feeling really focused and calm, this would be a time to take that out and sniff it and then bring yourself down and kind of get really grounded in the moment. Or likewise, actually, you could even get into that state on the yoga mat, for example, and then when you're in that state, take that fragrance and smell it. And here, I would definitely say that it would be best if you if you could try to pick something that's not familiar to you, maybe in a category that you already associate with being focused or calm, but not something that you previously really know well. And then really get into this quiet, meditative, focused state. And then later on, when you're at work or doing whatever, and you're feeling like your brain is jumping everywhere, And then if you smell that scent again, you're going to feel much more brought down to earth, much more focused and much calmer. So that would be totally the way to do it. So we can do it with emotions, we can do it with intentions, and we can do it with creating specific memory portfolios for ourselves. 
I know another way that you've talked about in our day-to-day life where you can use scent is when it comes to nurturing good nutrition habits. I think you said maybe even smelling something like a citrus smell that smells healthy might stave off cravings. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So this is work that's related to the idea that a scent can in this case, something familiar, bring you into a mindset that might remind you, for example, that really rather than brownies right now, for instance, if I smelled something citrusy and orangey, I should have maybe an orange or actually just keep on the fruit thing. So something that's going to remind me of a different kind of food that I specifically know is going to be healthier for me than what I might really, from just a pure desire perspective, want to have cookies or brownies or donuts or something along those lines. So here is a scent that specifically reminds you of a particular food type. It could also be that it reminds you of having, you know, your healthy intentions in mind. So you know that you want to, let's say, eat more fruit and be healthier in terms of your diet and smelling a scent that's connected to healthy food is going to kind of remind you of those intentions that you have. So similar to the kinds of things we were talking about, but in this case, more specific. And in the particular moment of, you know, I'm just a bit bored and I would like something sweet, you know, the cookies come instantly to mind, but rather than something sweet and not so healthy, how about something sweet and healthy? How about some fruit? So that would be an example of how that could work. I think a lot of people don't fully understand the link between smell and taste. Can you give us a little lesson? Absolutely. So when people say taste, I would say that 99% of the time they really mean flavor, which is very, very predominantly to do with our sense of smell. So the sense of taste is actually, strictly speaking, a very simple sensory system. It is only the sensations of salt, sour, sweet, bitter, and potentially umami, depending on where you fall in the camp of umami. But in any event, it is really just these basic sensations. So for instance, when you're eating French fries, the taste is just salt. When you're eating chocolate, the taste is just sweet. Maybe if it's dark chocolate, there's a tiny bit of bitter. When you're eating bacon, it is just salt. The quality that makes bacon bacon is all the aromas. In fact, there's about 130 different types of aromatic molecules that are being released when we are chewing a piece of bacon and also when that bacon is being cooked and we're in the room and sniffing it. But what happens when we're actually eating is that taste of salt, which is directly in our mouth because taste is based on the interaction with chemicals in our mouth that are dissolved in saliva and interacting with taste buds that are in our mouth. Whereas what's happening with the flavor component and where smell comes in is that the aromas that are in our mouth, the aroma chemicals actually are in fact traveling up from the back of the mouth as we're breathing. So the fact that we're breathing is a big piece of this equation. So we inhale and the aroma molecules that are in our mouth go traveling from the back of the mouth and they go into the nose. They come through the back of the mouth into the nose and they land on the olfactory receptors in that route as opposed to going directly through our nostrils, but they get to the exact same place. And at the same time that we're perceiving those molecules from the inhalation from the back of our mouth, and then the exhalation whooshes them down, we have that basic taste of, let's say, salt in our mouth. And the brain then fuses those two sensations together. And that is what flavor is. If you took out smell from the equation, and this is what's happened when people lose their sense of smell, all they get is salt. And if you've ever had a really bad cold or stuffed up nose, and that airway passage between your mouth and your nose is blocked up, 
then people say like food doesn't taste right. It tastes really bland. And that's because the aroma component of it is not getting to your experience. And it's really this kind of illusion that it's taking place in our mouth because it's really taking place actually in our nose and fundamentally then in our brain as our brain is putting those two sensations together at the exact same moment. So when we're eating, it is this fusion of taste and smell that's creating our perception of what we're consuming. This makes so much sense because my husband is someone who has allergies and asthma and once in a while, about once every two years, he just completely loses his sense of smell. And he complains that he can't taste a red wine or, a sti- you know, whatever delicious things. So that makes a lot of sense. I feel like a lot of people give more attention to sight and hearing when it comes to our senses. From a neuroscience perspective, what else do you wish people appreciated more about their sense of smell? Well, I wish people appreciated their sense of smell for the fact that it really is involved in every aspect of their lives. So most people think of smell to the extent they think of it at all in connection with food. And they really usually just think of it in the sense of like, I'm sniffing as the food is cooking, or maybe as it's in front of me, or I take a sniff of it like directly through my nostrils. Most people don't realize what's going on, that it's to do with the aromas that are in our mouth that are producing the sensation of food while we're eating it. But Our sense of smell is actually involved in our social relationships, in our spatial and memory capabilities, in our sense of self, in our emotional world in an extremely intense way. It is really the fabric of our existence. And when people lose their sense of smell, they feel as though they're behind a pane of glass and the world has basically become black and white for them. And it becomes worse and worse over time, the longer they have this loss. Now, this is actually different from people who are born without a sense of smell. That's quite rare. People who are born without a sense of smell, their brains are wired differently from the get-go and they don't really suffer the same way that people who've had a sense of smell and then lose it. But from COVID in particular, there are many people who have prolonged smell loss and their lives derail in ways that they could never have imagined prior to because the realization about how smell is really the glue or the threads that are holding our whole entire existence together is really not apparent to people until they lose it. And one of the reasons why I think that smell takes such a backseat in people's minds generally is because smells are invisible. You know, if I stick my nose in the flower and I perceive something, I go, well, that smell is coming from that flower. But apart from that, we are bombarded with scents all the times and don't realize it. We're not usually paying that much attention to it until that curtain drops. And when that happens and that absence is there, it's like, oh my goodness, everything that I was sort of taking for granted about this whole sort of almost like this three-dimensionality or fourth-dimensionality of existence just isn't there any longer. And the disconnect that people feel from everything is really tremendous. And it comes back to feeling this disconnect even with our own selves, which can be very depressing. And actually, you know, one of the reasons why mental illness, something that happens quite consistently with people that lose our sense of smell, there's a neurological basis to it. And there's also kind of an existential basis to it because the sort of feeling of loss of oneself can become really difficult for people to deal with. But it's also because neurologically, the place in the brain where our conscious perception of sense takes place is the exact same place called the amygdala, the amygdala hippocampal complex in particular. This is where emotion, emotional memory, and our associations 
are being processed as well. So a brain area, which is dedicated to this other function of memory and learning and associations and emotion is also the exact same place where our conscious perception of smell, like I'm smelling something, oh, it's a rose. It's happening in the exact same place. So fundamentally, our experience of scent is based on emotion, learning, and memory. And those three things are completely fused in our experience with scent. Hey, it's Whitney Baker from Electric Ideas. I wanted to take a quick break within this episode to invite you to join my upcoming Season to Shift Mastermind for Moms. This is my signature six-week program that begins Wednesday, September 27th. And since doors close next week, I want to take this opportunity just to share a few answers to some questions I've had recently regarding the program. So number one, who is it for? The Season to Shift Mastermind is for moms who are coming up for air a little bit on their motherhood journey, and they're realizing that somewhere along the line of having work and kids and running a household, they lost track of themselves. A second question I've been getting is, is this in person? Is it self-guided? How does it work? The Season to Shift Mastermind is all live online. Every week we come together online for a very intentionally curated teaching, guided meditation, and journaling exercises. Beyond our weekly sessions, there's mini homeworks, which are intentionally easy to implement. And there's also built-in accountability because we all know moms are busy. We're flooded with a ton of demands. If it feels like this might be your season to shift, please hop on the website at myelectricideas.com. Click the mastermind tab. Also, I'd love to hear from you. You're welcome to drop me an email at Whitney at myelectricideas.com or DM me at, at @whitneywoman on Instagram with any questions. So like I said, the deadline to sign up is next week. Snag your spot. I hope to see you there. Okay, back to the show. Another aspect of scent that really stuck with me as I delved into your wide body of, you know, research and information was the link between smell and longevity. I really hadn't thought about that before. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So this is a little bit of a, of a murky area because it's not entirely clear why there's a strong link, but there's definitely is. So People who are over the age of 57 and who have a loss of sense of smell, everything else being equal compared to their peers, exact same, you know, health characteristics, other like demographic characteristics, those people without a sense of smell are four times more likely to die within a five-year period. Now, why is that? And as we get older, there's definitely a continuing trajectory of if you have smell loss, you are in mortal danger, as it were. Now, there's a couple of really direct things. One is that there are several neurological diseases that are heralded by loss of smell, often a decade, potentially even more, before the other features of the disease become manifest. So two really classic ones are Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. And if it is recognized that this is what is going on with an individual before the more blatant aspects of these illnesses are being displayed, then medication can be brought on board, then different treatments can be brought on board, and the prognosis is much better overall. But in the shorter term, because this is like a decade out, and usually, you know, people don't die instantly from those diseases either. It's just that, you know, things are less healthy moving forward. But why would it be that, for instance, Someone in their early 60s is more likely to die than someone else who has a same age but normal sense of smell. 
And it seems like maybe what's going on there is that actually, because our olfactory receptors are basically directly exposed to the environment, they're constantly being bombarded with everything that we are being exposed to. So if there's toxins in our environment that we may really just not be noticing, they're just part of, let's say, we live in a polluted area or other kinds of things, it's going to be killing off our olfactory receptors. Now, olfactory receptors regenerate typically approximately every 28 days or so, you're basically getting a new nose. They all don't come on board at the exact same time. So it's like, you know, some are dying off and some are regenerating, but over the course of about a month, you're getting like this whole replenishment. And this is what's going on when you have a healthy functioning sense of smell. Now, as a function of being exposed to toxins, what could be happening is first of all, the smell loss is more severe and or more permanent because you're constantly being exposed. But it's also potentially the case that your internal organs are also being damaged by the toxins that are, let's say, in the air that you're breathing. But you don't know this because you don't have like a microscope on your heart or your lungs or your liver. And it's only when you're suddenly really sick that it becomes apparent that you have these internal organ damages, which can lead to an early death. And it's actually your sense of smell, which is a bellwether to the fact that you're in a toxic environment. So again, it's not necessarily the fully like one-to-one picture here, but this seems to be a good explanation. And, or it could just be regardless of potential toxins in the environment as a function of other aspects of physiological malfunction, the olfactory system starts to break down as well. So let's just say you have some metabolic disorder or some other kind of disorder, which is wrecking havoc on your internal organs, just because it could then also be moving upstream as it were to your olfactory receptors and actually impairing your sense of smell. And that that could be what's going on before you even realize these other systems are malfunctioning. So in any case, there's a really strong bidirectional relationship between a healthy sense of smell and a healthy body. If we are experiencing loss of sense of smell, maybe it's not serious, but maybe it's something that, like you said, could be a harbinger for something else that we need to get ahead of. So I'm glad you shared that. I also just love the idea of, quote, getting a new nose every month. So in terms of our, you know, I'm going to say smell receptors because I don't want to mispronounce the, <laughs> don't want to mispronounce a term. What can we do proactively to protect or enhance them? I live in an urban environment. That's not going to change. But what what can I do to protect and enhance? So that's a great question. And I should also say that in addition to sort of our physical organs that are sort of from the neck down, our brain is very, very tied to our sense of smell. And so just the healthy functioning of our brain, our cognitive capabilities, for example, as we age, a way to keep our sort of brain strong, our memory strong, our attention strong, our other aspects of sort of like good cognition strong is to maintain a healthy sense of smell. And actually the number one way to do that is by literally exercising your nose. What I mean by that is deliberately sniffing various scents every day and possibly multiple times per day. So you could take like four familiar scents you have at home, let's say some chocolate, some peanut butter, vanilla, maybe some Vicks VapoRub or something else like that. And every day, just spend a few seconds sniffing each one and thinking about what it is that it reminds you of, and then go to the next one, go to the next one, go to the next one. Maybe do that again, if you can remember to do that. And this is sort of like a deliberate act of sniffing. 
And then you do that for a couple of months with that set, and then you move on to another set. And so this active, deliberate, intentional sniffing and thinking while you're sniffing literally only takes a couple of minutes total, even if you're doing this more than once, is a really good way to activate your nose and your brain in the act of smelling. And that is something that definitely helps keep our brain and nose healthy moving forward. The other thing from a protective aspect of it is recognizing that there are a variety of chemicals which might harm olfactory receptors. So smoking is a classic one. So people who are smokers, and fortunately these days there are far fewer smokers than there used to be, but in any case, smoking, for instance, kills off olfactory receptors. And what people who are former smokers tended to notice after a couple of months after quitting is like, oh my goodness, food tastes so much better. Again, saying taste, but really because they had gotten their olfactory receptors fully functioning again, all of them active and healthy, that then they're able to detect all the nuances of the food that they're eating and getting so much more pleasure from food. But likewise, you know, there's various, if you work with a lot of, let's say, cleaning products, paints, nail polish, things like this, like, you know, there's, there's a whole set you can, you can look up if specifically you're interested, depending upon what kind of work you do, what kinds of chemicals might be damaging to the olfactory receptors. And basically, if you do work in an environment where you're exposed to chemicals like that, wear a mask. You know, we're all familiar with masks now, so it's not nearly as hard as it used to be to think about these things. Definitely that will help. So depending upon your work environment, that would be something to do. Also, if you know you're going into like a polluted area, let's say either traveling or whatever the case might be, like you have to stand on a street corner for five hours in an afternoon, let's say Times Square, <laughs> a gazillion vehicles going by, you know, again, a good place to possibly wear a mask just to protect yourself. I love that this is just one more science-based reason to stop, pause, smell, appreciate, whether it be flowers or a meal. I know in your most recent book, it's called Why You Eat What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food, which I've added to my list. <laughs> I, I just wanted to make a quick mention. I'm curious what you have to say about people just stopping to smell their food and how you practice that in your everyday life. So that's a great question. And it really comes back to a term I don't like, but it is actually so true. And that is to say mindfulness. So I don't like the sort of kitschy way that it's been co-opted into everything, but really literally paying attention, slowing down, concentrating, being aware of what it is you're actually doing while you're doing it. This makes our food experiences so much more enhanced. We feel more satisfied from what we're eating. We feel more satiated. That is to say, we feel more full after we've consumed it. And we feel like what we've eaten has been much more delicious because actually when we are paying attention to what we're consuming and not on our phones or not like multitasking, doing other things, we are actually able to get much more of the food aroma, the food taste and the full experience of it rather than oh, it just so happened that there was a bowl of something beside me while I was working on my computer and all of a sudden the bowl is gone. And what was that? Damn, I love those chocolate covered peanuts. And I didn't even really detect consuming them because I was like typing emails out while I was eating them. And compare that to if you just sat there, put one of those chocolate covered peanuts in your mouth, you know, savored it, let it melt in your mouth, and then 
really appreciated it, it would be a thousand times more pleasurable and a thousand times more satisfying so that you didn't feel like actually have to refill that bowl because I didn't get anything from that first batch because I just went by without me even noticing it. So our experience of food becomes so much richer when we pay attention to the sensory experiences we're having with them, with eating, and in particular, smell and taste, because those are sort of the essential ingredients of the food that's on our plate and really can help us feel more full, more satisfied and happier with what we've eaten and actually make healthier decisions when it comes to eating. Because also it's often the case that while we're eating, we just keep on going when we're actually full already. And if we stop for a moment to say, hey, wait a second, am I actually hungry anymore? Is this actually really giving me any pleasure anymore? And if we we realize, hey, no, then we can stop and then feel much better about it rather than, oh no, I just ate too much or whatever the case might be, or I have a stomach ache and so on. All right. I know we're coming up against time, but there's one more area that I feel like my audience would really like to hear your opinion on, and that is smell and sex. You've said smell is sex. (laughs) So tell us about this. Well, this is a big story to unpack and goes into evolutionary biology and mate selection theory. And I'll try to say it as succinctly as possible is that women, and this is really, I mean, smell is huge for both men and women, but it's even bigger for women than for men because of its fundamental connection to mate choice, which has to do with producing children, which has to do with sort of the basic biology of why we have sex. So this is not saying anything about homosexual relationships. And there's all kinds of, you know, sort of just to steer away from that, which is, you know, smell is highly involved in that too, and everything else. And it's a very sort of arousing, emotional, sexual component. But what I'm talking about now is sort of the biology of sex and sort of the evolutionary principles about why we're having sex, which is to get our genes out into future generations as much as possible. So someone with 15 healthy children is extremely successful from a biological perspective, even if they barely have any money because the fact that they have to feed so many mouths and so forth. So the idea biologically is we have as many children as possible who are as healthy as possible so that then they go and reproduce and have many children. And so our genes get out there far and wide and we're like extremely successful biological specimen. Where this comes down to smell is that it turns out that there's a lot of unique things about our sense of smell. So actually we get a new nose every month. Everyone actually has a unique nose in the sense that what you can smell and how you smell it is ever so slightly different from somebody else because of the expression of receptors that you have is ever so slightly different. So unlike, for example, in vision, where we all, except if you're colorblind in one way or the other, we all experience the world the same way, as far as we know, with smell, it's actually ever so slightly different for everyone. And it's also the case that everyone smells every so slightly different. That is to say, our body odor is in fact as unique as our fingerprint. And this is how the tracking dog finds you when you escape from the jail cell and you left your t-shirt behind and doesn't go after somebody else because your body odor is your unique physical signature. Now, why this is particularly important is it turns out that your body odor is the external representation of the genes of your immune system. And your immune system is what makes you healthy. It's what protects you from various diseases, or maybe you're vulnerable to certain diseases and so forth. And the more that your immune system is functioning well, the less likely you are to get sick and so forth. 
And so going back to this whole biology side of things and evolution, from a woman's perspective, because she has so much cost in reproduction, you know, at least a year out of commission, as it were, because nine months of pregnancy and actually prior to the advent of modern formula and so forth, probably another year before her infant is able to eat solid foods and so forth. And if she gets pregnant during that period of time, she stops lactating. So it's possible that her infant can starve. So let's say two years out of the picture from the potential for another mating, a ton of energy put forth into that huge vulnerability. So like you're much more likely for all kinds of bad things possibly to happen because you're caring for two, you're, you know, you're slowed down because of physical constraints and so forth. So a major, major investment and cost for females in terms of reproduction. Men, on the other hand, have almost zero costs, like maybe five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) technically speaking. And then that's it. You know, okay, I walked away and, you know, maybe my genes got out there into the next generation. Now on the flip side, the the benefit for females is that they always know 100% for sure that baby is my genetic material. And if I'm like invested biologically, then it's really important that that baby is healthy, thrives, survives, and reproduces herself. What is the thing that's most likely to let my child be healthy and survive and thrive? is if she herself is really healthy and her being healthy means that she has a really good immune system. And how would it be that she gets a really good immune system? Well, if I mate with someone whose immune system is really complementary to my own and matches up the good things, carries other good things that I don't have, doesn't double up on anything bad, then that child I'm going to have is going to be super healthy and able to carry on the gene line and so forth. And body odor is the cue and the key for determining who your best mate will be from a biological perspective. And this is why smell is so important from a sort of sexual mating perspective for women. And it is really the case that women who, you know, the guy can look great, fantastic on paper. I get close to him. And his smell is just wrong. It's not necessarily bad. He, I know he just had a shower. He's, you know, everything looks well-groomed about him, but it just doesn't, he doesn't smell right. And that is a sign that you are probably not going to be the best biological parents. Now, if you're not trying to have children, it doesn't matter. But it's also the case that if a woman doesn't find that a man smells right or good, then that's a real barrier to sexual intimacy as well. So One of the sort of caveats to that is A, wearing fragrance. So if the guy is wearing cologne and you may not know what he really smells like, or it turns out actually if the woman is on hormonal contraception, that can also change her preferences to actually make biological mistakes. But that's like going down a different story, which we could maybe continue another time. But in any case, smell is extremely important for arousal from the point of view of just the associations we have with smell and sex, and especially for women from a biological standpoint in terms of having healthy children. Fascinating. Thank you so much. I know that is a super complex topic, and I appreciate your ability to encapsulate it so well. I know that my listeners are going to want to find you and learn more. So can you share where the best way to buy your books and follow you is? Absolutely. Thank you. So I have a website. It's rachelhers.com. Please come visit me and you can contact me through the website. I have three books. Actually, my first book is called The Scent of Desire. 
although it has that sexy title, you might think it's just all about what we talked about, but it's really everything to do with our experience with smell. I have another book called That's Disgusting, which sounds disgusting, but it's really actually about the emotion of disgust, but also about taste. And my most recent book, Why You Eat What You Eat, is clearly about, as you know, our relationship with food. So those books are available online, on Amazon, all over the place at your bookseller, your independent bookseller, as well as Barnes and Noble. So you should be able to get that anywhere as well, I hope. And I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm on now X. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I'm fairly easy to find and you can just Google me and hopefully um, connect. So thank you so much for mentioning that. And thank you for having me, Whitney. My pleasure. I always wrap my interviews with one final question, and that's when it comes to smell, what's one question women could be asking themselves more? So what I like to think about is why is it that I either really like this scent or maybe there's a smell that you really dislike. And a really great way to get to know yourself and figure yourself out is to figure out if you can answer those questions. Why is it that I really hate that smell? Well, maybe you can bring it back to like, there's actually a memory in your past it's connected to. And maybe that will shed some light on who you are as a person and your past experiences, maybe things you haven't thought about. And the same way with something, I really like that. Why is it that I really like that? And that can help you trace back sort of the hidden ingredients of your own self. So asking yourself those questions when you come across a scent that you really react to positively or you really react to negatively, question why you have that response and maybe getting to the answer will help you learn more about yourself. Love that. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Whitney. I'm so glad you joined me today. If you're looking for more, feel free to connect with me on Instagram at, at @whitneywoman. And if you enjoyed the show, I invite you to support me by leaving a review or sharing it with a friend. Hope you have an inspired day.